1: I'm former double agent and Newsweek editor-at-large, Navid Jamali, and you're listening to Declassified, brought to you by Newsweek. Declassified is an exploration of what it means to be secure and of the people all over the world who are quietly working to keep us safe. In my career in the intelligence community, I served as a double agent and as an intelligence officer. My goal is to help explain the things that you can see the proverbial iceberg above the waterline and let you know what is below it. The world was a very different place in 1992. That's when Carmen Best joined the Seattle Police Department at not even 30 years old. There was no COVID, no ghost guns, no smartphones. The 9-11 attacks were a little less than a decade away from forever changing our approach to national security and public safety. It was the same year that the Rodney King riots would leave 63 dead and thousands injured in Los Angeles. Over the course of her career with the Seattle Police Department, Carmen Best saw the world change in so many ways. She would grapple with changes within her department, too, diversification efforts, budget cuts, and the challenge of policing an increasingly divided Seattle. Along the way, Carmen Best became the first black woman at the helm of the SPD. She's now an analyst in the private sector and for the media. And her first book called Black in Blue Lessons on Leadership, Breaking Barriers and Racial Reconciliation came out last year. I got to sit down with Carmen Best earlier this month to talk about the state of policing, both as a profession and as a political lightning rod. We started talking about how she advised politicians to approach the issues ahead of midterms and the 2024 elections. Chief, so much to talk to you about today. Really appreciate you taking the time for your busy schedule to join us.
0: I'm glad to be here. So let's let's
1: start with this this high level question. You know, we've got a presidential election coming up in 2024. And there's no doubt for the Republicans and the Democrats, policing is going to be at the forefront. You know, when you think about George Floyd, when you think about all the transformational stuff that's happened in the last couple of years, if you were advising President Biden today, as he prepares, you know, to run potentially for reelection, when you think about 2024, what would you be telling him? What is the role of the federal government? Where should policing be going? Oh, this is a really big question, but what is the right way to do this? Is is defunding the police the right policy? Is it a winning policy? Is there something else that you think is the right way to balance change with the fact that you know we still need a police department?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Nabi. And just by the length of time it takes you to even say it, you mentioned know, <laughs> you know how complex it can potentially be. I would start with though the defund issue. I I believe that we just cannot start with a conversation about defunding the police uh, because it's not practical. So if I were giving advice, I would say to anybody, it's like, let's have a real conversation with practical parameters. You know, we're not going to have a society where there are no police officers. So defunding police and removing a public safety component is not a realistic um, approach. Uh, for what we're trying to get to which is racial equity and fairness in our criminal legal system so defining the police is not be that's not where i would begin but i would begin by you know one acknowledging the disparity acknowledging the history acknowledging there are problems and, and you know not taking a pie in the sky view but but in doing so looking at ways that we can, better address, you know, these public safety issues and the inherent issues of racism that infiltrate so many aspects of our society. And that doesn't, that isn't just for policing, it's in so many other areas where we need to work on these disparate outcomes. So looking at practical ways to uh, make sure that we have fairness uh, in people who are responding to calls for service and policing. And There's a number of ways to do that. I think the George Floyd Justice of Policing Act, which unfortunately hasn't passed, but many aspects of it are really good things, a really solid foundation for having fairness and equity and policy across the board. As you know, 18,000 different police agencies across the country right now, and that potentially is 18,000 different ways of addressing some of these really pervasive issues. So if we had a unifying Uh, metric, if you will, to make sure that at least some of the things are consistent, no matter where you work, no matter what area of the country you're in geographically, I think that would be a good start to developing the trust that we need with the community. It's just hard to do that uh, when there's so many different variables in place. And I thought that was a really great place to start. For example, um, you know, no-knock warrants. I know in Seattle, you know, I'm from there. They haven't done no-knock warrants in at least a couple of decades, if not longer. In uh, other places, they're still doing them. And so wouldn't it be great if consistently across the board, we just decided that, look, no-knock warrants are inherently dangerous both to the officers entering and to the people on the other side of that door, uh, if you get it wrong, as, as was the case with Brianna Taylor. So there are things that we can do consistently across the board uh, to eliminate you know, some of the issues that we have that come up. Uh, And so we have continuity and then making sure that, you know, where the, where we see reform is needed, the reform is quick and concise and targeted in its scope so that we don't have agencies, again, like Seattle, which have been under a consent decree for over a decade. I mean, when they started that consent decree, we were still using flip phones. So, (laughs) you know, it's, it's time to move these things along.
1: And and to that point, you know, when you think about the federal government and, Perhaps, you know, their role is more of a certification one, one to set sort of standards. One of the complaints that that we hear often is this idea that when it comes to policing, you know, when it comes to sort of bad cops, that there's not necessarily a good way to remove their credentials to know that they because of unions, because of a whole host of other legal structure, bad cops can which are look. I personally believe those are the the terribly small minority of policing out there. I think most police officers have a difficult job and they do it very well and and we probably never hear about them. There's always a few that do get out there and that, you know, unfortunately colors the entire profession. Do you think the federal government has a role in terms of that certification, in terms of sort of making standards? If you go from Seattle police where, where you were the chief and you go to some small agency, I mean, the standards and training and hiring and policing can be vastly different. Does the federal government, do you think, have a, have a role? Would Biden be well-heeled in terms of focusing on setting standards for policing?
0: Yeah, setting standards, of course, is important. That's I think that's what I was talking about there, having some national standards that are applicable to any agency so that geography doesn't really determine level of police service that you get. But beyond that, when you talk about uh, certifications and decertification, there certainly should be uh, a level a process in place by which at least, if nothing else, there's a database so that you know. Even other agencies don't necessarily always know uh, where a police officer was before, under the circumstances under which they left that agency, um, if there was you know, something that would prohibit them or should prohibit them from remaining in the profession. There really does need to be that. And there's no continuity uh, across states. So I know um, Washington State, for example, does have, you know, um, a repository through their state academy, but not every state has that. Um, The way it's run is different. The criteria by which you get decertified is different. So I, I think that would be a great thing to have in place again, to build a level of um, continuity uh, and so people can understand, you know, that these actions or these particular things um, will either preclude an officer from becoming an officer again or, you know, are de minimis and it won't preclude them. But it, it should be a transparent process that's consistent and we're not there yet.
1: And we, we talk about, you know, sort of policing police, right? But there's another part, Chief, which is hiring. I mean, I... I I don't have an actual survey here, but just in talking to uh, law enforcement from, you know, junior to senior to management to executives, there's a feeling that I would say that morale is is low. And I think that, you know, many police departments are struggling with meeting hiring goals. And it feels like with unions, for example, there's always a focus on, um, you know, police officers who have been there. And I think Seattle, Seattle PD, if I'm not mistaken, is one of the better paid Police agencies, but for for young recruits, for someone who's coming out of college or someone who's coming out of the military who's looking to do this, in many cases there's barriers to getting you know the kind of candidates that I think many people want to see join the police force. How do we change that? How do we encourage diversity? How do we encourage people to um, you know apply? I mean, is this a question of frankly? you're getting what you pay for? I mean, is, is part of the issue here that we should be looking at increasing, starting salaries for some of these young police officers and, you know, encouraging a different type of person to apply?
0: Yeah, again, a great um, great observation, and a great question there, Naveed. Absolutely, we should be looking, it's, it's yes to all of it, Yeah, <laughs> we should be looking at <laughs> making the wages, you know, competitive uh, within the uh, policing and law enforcement uh, career path. So that you're getting, uh, you know, uh, folks who have a broad breadth of, uh, hopefully, of education, um, you know, who are committed to the work um, and uh, it, it those types of things, you know, obviously higher pay, often less likely to, you know, have issues of corruption, uh, you know, bribes and that kind of things, uh, those kinds of things. So very, very much there should be a higher level of pay. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the truth of the matter is that across the country, depending upon where you work, the pay widely varies. So I tend to say, and this is a generality, so um, which I don't like to speak in generalities, but you kind of have to in this circumstance. Generally, you know, those West Coast cities uh, tend to be um, you know, higher paying, uh, whereas some of the others, um, not so much, you know, depending on where you work, some of the larger agencies, and so I think that, you know, there's disparity in pay depending upon where you work. And you want to make sure that um, people are getting paid for the work that, they, that they're that they doing. And it's just like you said, you get what you pay for. So, um, you know, if you want people who've invested in their education, who've invested in training, who've done these types of things, um, they're going to expect a certain level of pay um, versus not. And that's just the, the truth of the matter. Well, you know...
1: You think about Seattle and Seattle is a you know, fairly expensive place to live. And I, I have to believe that for a young, you know, brand new Seattle police officer, it's a challenge to uh, start on a Seattle police department salary and live in Seattle proper. We talk well, about we talk about community policing. Is there again, is this a barrier to getting people who are representative of the communities that they patrol and police?
0: Yeah, you know, well, it's funny. There has been a research done this shows that you know you could have a high level of uh, policing quality and standards with people who don't as- actually live in the city. I mean, if you have a person who's well educated, well trained, they're going to take that training and education into the job, whether that job is you know exactly where they reside or not. So I don't think that is the the you know, the most uh, important factor. You do want people who are committed to doing the work and who are committed to public safety, and certainly people feel better. When they know the officers are invested in their community uh, in other ways, but that shouldn't be the the determining thing. Uh, community policing, I think, can be you know handled and done uh, whether you live in the city or not. But the the issue when you live in a city like Seattle or like in Southern California, where the housing costs are so high, people tend to have to commute a long way for work, you know, in order to live in affordable housing, and then that of course that um, that impacts the quality of life. So again, you've limited your pool of folks who are willing to do the work for that reason.
1: Yeah, I guess that that really does make sense. And um, there, there seems to be an emphasis on this idea of, of um, community policing, and also trying to diversify and and you know bring diversity into uh, policing. You talked about you know when you left Seattle, Seattle PD. Um, I, I think that is it fair to say that as uh, the focus early on on defunding the police and and sort of shrinking police department budgets, is it fair to say, and again, this I know you don't like to speak in generalities, but it would appear that the people that end up getting impacted are not the ones who have been there for 18, 19, 20, 21 years, but it's the new hires, the ones that in many cases um, represent diversity. So what would you say to someone who is pushing, you know, defund the police and doesn't necessarily understand that actually defunding the police impacts or, or I mean, I should ask you first. Do you do you agree that it impacts diversity in police departments, and how would you
0: explain that? Absolutely, I agree that. I mean, I can say from my own personal experience that that defund movement, as it was coming to uh, to fruition there in Seattle, it was coming at a time where we had worked really hard to increase the um, diversity of the organization. And typically, as you know, most police departments are you know they they have unions, and it's last in first out. That's most union. So we are dealing with the situation under those circumstances when the newest hires where we've done the most work at diversity and inclusion and equity and bringing those uh, hires on, those will be the first ones to leave, And you'll be left with a department that really doesn't reflect the community that it serves and isn't as progressive uh, as you'd like it to be.
1: You know, and the other part about community and policing is obviously uh, mental health. And Seattle, of course, uh, dealt with this uh, sort of crisis, and I think a lot of people have expectations of the, where the police should stand in, in terms of uh, mental health. Obviously, I don't think anyone is advocating for criminalizing mental health, but in many cases, the police are just nine one one is the place you call, right? I think that for mo- many people, that's the government service that they're the most familiar with. Um, how where do, where do you see police fitting in? This is a big question now that people are debating. how, how do we, you know keep them involved, but also understand that there's a there's a larger underlying problem when it comes to mental health.
0: Oh, I've talked about this multiple times. You know, it's critically important that other systems are robust and are able to handle those functions that they need to in terms of prevention and intervention, whether it's mental health or I would even say addiction, but certainly with mental health issues. Uh, and there are a lot of calls for people in crisis who need mental health mental health and addiction. The time to do that, though, was way upstream. You know, I know in New York, for example, um, there was a man who um, appeared to have been in mental crisis and and shoved a woman in front of a subway um, to her death. And I would venture to guess um, that that person had been engaged in and touched by many services. And um, even with that, you know, the upstream work you know, wasn't able to prevent, you know, this interaction. So we really need to have those services be much more robust. Uh, You know, if officers had responded, for example, and let's say they engaged and somehow ended up, you know, hurting or killing this guy, you and I both know that there would be marches, demonstrations, and investigation, and all of those things, and rightfully so, because someone was injured or lost their life at the hands of officers, Yet we have to have that same level of intensity with the accountability for other agencies as well. Because often what happens is that officers and you know police in particular are dealing with other failed systems, and, and those systems aren't failing because they don't care. Uh, often it's because they're not properly funded and resourced. So I think when they talk about defunding and moving funds, I think it's both and we have to have good um, you know, public safety, good police officers, good training. But we also really need to invest in um, you know, the mental health and mental wellness and public services uh, to help people who are in that level of crisis. In,
1: in your book, uh, Black and Blue, Lessons on Leadership, Breaking Barriers and Racial Reconciliation, you know, I think this is a common theme. We're We're about to chief, we're about to hit, you know, the spring and summer months, weather will warm up and there'll no doubt, you know, we're we're, COVID restrictions are easing. Uh, There's always, I think, a jump in crime over the summer months. Um, Again, if you were, you know, taking what you learned with the chop and learned in Seattle, what do you think you would advise uh, mayors and police chiefs in terms of how to handle uh, protests, how to handle, you know, the social uh, people who want to make their voices heard, but also, you know, to protect both life and property. What's the balance there?
0: Yeah, well, philosophically, you know, the balance is that you want to protect people's first amendment right to free speech, you know, um, to the degree that you can uh, under all circumstances, right, it is a, a right that's constitutionally provided. You want to facilitate the safe um, access of folks who are demonstrating, you know, um, and that is a, a primary concern. But also, you know, you have to take into account, you know, the environment uh, and, and the safety of everyone else that is affected ancillary, you know, ancillarily to these demonstrations, you know, and it's, it's a really, it's really difficult. Uh, it's really tricky to do that. Um, so... I know for Seattle, there was a lot of criticism about some of the tactics that we use. And I think that's worth visiting and revisiting about how you disperse crowds, uh, if things become violent in nature, maybe more emphasis paid on how we can better get demonstrators to help monitor and diffuse situations within their own ranks, so so to speak, so that uh, there's no police interaction or engagement. Um, but it's a very tricky thing because you, you know, ultimately you want to make sure that people are allowed to express themselves, to engage in, um, you know, civil discourse and sometimes civil unrest. Um, but not to the degree that, you know, people are injured or hurt and that includes the officers. So, um, and those are very nuanced decisions that have to be made based on, you know, crowd size, on what's being um, displayed at the time, on, you know, the time of day, the the nature of the event, um. but always with an
1: eye on trying to facilitate free speech. And and that idea of free speech, you know, obviously it's always a balancing act and being a a chief of police in a big city, there's a lot of stakeholders that you have to negotiate with, that you have to work with. And and clearly one of those are the unions. And when it comes to questions of, you know, firing of qualified immunity, of contractual, you know, negotiations, how does this work? Are the unions, you know, to a layperson like me, are the unions a hindrance? Are they, I mean, it feels like whenever there's change that's proposed, the unions in big cities are the first ones to dig their heels in and say no. Um, they're also the ones that sort of focus not on the, you know, the young brand new cop, but the, you know, the more the person who's been there for 10 plus years or so. In your opinion, what's the way forward dealing with police unions? I mean, is there... I understand they're they're not going anywhere, but are they uh, are they a blocker? Are they can they be be brought along to sort of help change, or are they just sort of this you know barrier?
0: Yeah, well, they can be brought along, and they should be brought along in any conversations or discussions that you're having. But some unions are there to protect um, wages, benefits, and working conditions. You know, that's generally the, the role of unions uh, for their, um, for their uh, participants. And then management and policy and guidance along those lines is really handled by the, by the organization, by the chief and those uh, within that structure. Uh, and when it gets a little dicey is when, you know, there's crossover and they have, they have conversations about that. But, you know, to the degree that you can, any chief is going to want to make sure that they're bringing the union along with them uh, and that, you know, there's a healthy, what I would call a healthy tension <laughs> between the sure. union and, and management, and that's probably always going to exist. But to the degree that you can, you want to bring them along with you. Listen, as a chief, I, I wanted my officer to have the best wages. I want them to have... Good working conditions of course and good benefits and so on that those things we can agree now there will be things um, about policy about movement about uh promotion um that fall it might be well with the management's authority that sometimes the union uh you know will have um, some concerns about that and so there just needs to be a compromise hence you know Negotiations, that's why it's called a negotiation, because you have to compromise uh, to get to the best outcome that you can for all the stakeholders, whether it's the officers, you know, the community, the citizens, you know, the electives. Um, And again, you know, there's no one-size-fits-all answer, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, the police are there to serve the community, so the community interest has to be, you know, foremost.
1: I think a lot of people think about unions, especially when it comes to qualified immunity or or more specifically, just firing someone. Your approach as a a leader, um, when it comes to those tough decisions, it feels like one of the most obvious shifts that I've seen within policing has been this idea that when something is so egregious that you fire people and you let them essentially sue to get back, that there's been, you know they have a right to arbitration and all this other stuff, but if it's something is so egregious, they just can't continue on. It, that feels like a pretty fundamental shift in policing. It doesn't feel like five, 10 years ago, that was the case. Is that the right way to do things? Is that something you agree with that, you know, you, a police officers think so egregious that there's no more trust. You can't trust them. They, they need to go and let them, you know, sue to get their job back essentially.
0: Well, I think that, yeah, there will be circumstances where it's just not viable, uh, to keep a person, you know, because community trust and public trust is so critically important, especially at this time when there's so many questions about police and police agencies and fairness and the inherent disparity, that there there can be actions that just warrant a, immediate dismissal, um, you know. And I think in those circumstances, that's the way it, that's just the way it has to be. But you know, to the degree that you can, you know, follow the protocols that are in place. They're in place for a reason. Uh, we don't want people being so autocratic in their, uh, in the way that they're running an agency that they make it difficult for the officers that they're, they're you know, within the agency. So that it's a balance. But, you know, there are, there are going to be situations where, um, unfortunately, they come up where that a chief is going to make the decision uh, that that is on behalf of the organization and not on behalf of the individual. So... Uh, that that will happen, but I do think there's a place for rules and policies and regulations and standards so that um, everyone is treated fairly, uh, so that they're not firing the women for an action, for right. like for example, that they that they would keep the men on for. If you see what I mean, sure. So there should be some level of protocol there in union rules, but uh, if the action is so egregious that it warrants termination, then you just have to do that. Well.
1: I- Uh, On that same vein, switching from unions to one of the things that is remarkable moving back to these codes from Washington State is is in many cases, it seems like a lot of the Western states and the Pacific Northwest, there's a lot more of an uh, acceptability and and legally for open carry. You know, as a as a as a police chief, no one's saying that people shouldn't, uh, you know, the Second Amendment should be nullified does it make it harder to police in an open carry state? I mean, there's a lot of question about, you know, legal gun owners versus um, those who <laughs> acquire firearms illegally. But in your experience, was that a concern dealing? I mean, again, I go back to the chop and there were uh, certain cases where people patrolling with, you know, uh, rifles and the, and the like. Does that, did that concern you? Does that cause an additional challenge? I mean, is it something that we need to, you know, that you had to be focused on, that perhaps your East Coast colleagues don't have to
0: be. Yeah, I'm going to say that any chief that's dealing with um, people who are carrying firearms openly, and uh, you know, throughout their jurisdiction, is is going to you know, be concerned about it, right? And they're going to pay attention. I always found it to be, while I wholeheartedly believe in Second Amendment rights and the right to bear arms, I, you know, the open carry at large events was always a concern. Uh, Because you have these, you know, large crowds, sometimes at parades or festivals, uh, festivals. thousands of people are there. And then you have people walking around who are, you know, open carry. And, you know, it can be alarming to some folks. And you have to pay particular attention because I don't know their mental status or their, you know, it can be questionable or not questionable. It's really unknown. Uh, You don't, you know, it just presents an extra level of inherent risk. Uh, when people are walking around open carry at these large events, that said, it's legal to do so and so we have to respect the rules, but it definitely was one that caused more concern. we paid more attention uh, when that was happening at particularly when we had large gatherings. I would prefer that people you know at those large events were not allowed to come in armed you know with open carry, but uh, you know we had to follow the letter of the law
1: of course and um, Obviously, there's legislation. If I can talk about things like the chop and 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 like you said, large events, um, you know, there is this concern about um, guns, that are, the proliferation of guns and firearms, but that also brings this question of of ghost guns. That on the opposite end of the spectrum, this is something where you know there is no. Uh, they're manufactured. There's no like you know registration. There's, there's no nothing. regulation
0: around it. You're absolutely right. So
1: how how do we deal with that? Because that seems to be you know the new way that's going. If if you can just buy individual parts and then literally three D print a gun, how do how do police counter that? That seems like an, an impossible thing to deal with.
0: Yeah, the ghost guns present a really unique issue that's um, brewing more and more. Uh, I was just um, looking at some research and some data related to ghost guns. Uh, so there are, I think, nine states. I might not have the number exactly right, but there's a small number of states that have legislation around it. Many states don't have it regulated at all. I know Washington um, was one of the states that did have uh, laws around that. Uh, it's it's very concerning. Uh, and there's finding that they're showing up uh, more uh, and more, while it's not. The, the most common weapon used in um, homicides and other violent crimes they have um, been seeing them come up more and more and, and recently so uh, i think it's going to continue to be a problem and maybe even a growing problem over time and on the again
1: so we talk about ghost guns which is something that someone can literally you know manufacture themselves but on the other spectrum um, especially in places on the east coast like here in new york there's you know, there's this iron, this iron pipeline, this idea that people buy guns in places um, or from gun shows where there's very lax or the gun laws are, are very easy. And then eventually those firearms find their way into big cities like Chicago or New York. When it comes to policing and investigating, you know, we can talk about taking guns off the streets, but what about this disruption of, of that flow of weapons? So looking at gun shows, looking at places that have sort of lax gun purchase requirements. Is there something that can be done for the proliferation of weapons before they get on the street? I mean, is that, do you see some sort of fashion that, you know, policing can stop, you know, the deadly scourge of weapons by, you know, starting by stopping them from ever even reaching the streets?
0: Well, they should be making every effort to do that on that and a whole lot of fronts, you know, uh, you know, making sure that there are, you know, they close the the gun, um, the gun loopholes that allow um, guns to be sold uh, at some of these shows, and that they're tracking guns more, uh, more efficiently under the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, is looking at different um, rules and legislation around that, uh, that as we secure guns or as guns are taken off the streets, that they literally are taken off the streets, not recirculated back uh, you know sold back to gun dealerships or, and that kind of thing is also helpful. I know in many states and many places um, they destroyed all you know handguns and they do not put them back into the uh, into uh, circulation. I think that's going to make a difference. Uh, you know we are a society here in the US where guns have been around for a very long time so eradicating uh, people purchasing and having those guns can be very, very difficult if, if not impossible. But, you know, taking all measures uh, through legal avenues as well as education, I think is going to be the best bet for us.
1: And it just feels like, again, you know, (laughs) I can't imagine being a young person and I got to be honest, Chief, like it feels like being a police officer today is such a comes with such a burden and it comes with a moral one. It comes with, I think, what people, you know, the outside community think of the job, but it also comes with this. Idea that technology is fundamentally changing what um, police do, and you know when you think about anything, look, DNA is. I'm sure you can remember when it became a relatively household name with you know CSI and you know, DNA is now a, a thing that we can use, but that also opened up a whole new uh, skill set that law enforcement needs. Do you think that in that same way with technology, with um, with Social media, with the fact that you're going to do investigations that sometimes cyber stuff ends up falling on the plate of local police department as opposed to say the FBI. How do you see policing changing with with all this technology, with all this information? And again, talk about freedom of speech. I think a lot of people are worried about this idea that you know police are spying on them, and yet you know we we all post probably a little too much on social media than we should. <laughs> what's the what's the balance? What I guess it's a two parter. One is how do we get police that are, are, are up to speed on this and is it changing the role? And two, what sort of guardrails can we put in place to make sure that police who are look they're on social media, they're looking at things, um, but they're doing so in a way that you know obviously adheres to the Constitution?
0: Yeah, well, I, I, I would say this. I mean there's a whole lot to unpack there, but if you're posting stuff on your social media, you're making it public. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, <laughs> right. I think that your expectation of privacy, uh, if you're posting things, pretty much is close to non-existent if you put it on a social media account. And, you know, many officers have put stuff on social media or other other professions, and, um, you know, that's resulted in discipline or, in some cases, termination of their employment. So it's, it's open, you know, it's public information for people to see and review. So I think we, we need to be some education around that. When it comes to just technology in general, I think that it's gonna, you know, it, it's a double-edged sword in some, in some ways because more crime is being committed, utilizing the dark web and utilizing, you know, other avenues of communication, utilizing technology, hacking, scams, and that sort of thing, um, creating a whole nother level of, you know, criminal activity that can occur. Uh, but at the same time, there's also a whole other level of, of security that can occur be you know, drones or biometrics or, uh, you know, just the ability to process um, scenes and evidence quicker because of technology is all there. Being able to store data, have more data stored more quickly within the cloud. Systems um, operate, you know, uh, in unison with one another. So you can take a report and have that report automatically upload. That upload automatically puts in the evidence of so that kind of a thing to make it much more efficient as well. So, you know, we all know that technology is evolving, evolving quickly, uh, and it can be used like anything else, both for good and for bad. And, and to, the,
1: to that end, you know, you think about Six, for example, and, and the amount of coordination that went into 1.6 that happened online before people actually even showed up here. Um, You, you know, I, I think about contact and the idea that police have with a local community. And, you know, it strikes me, Chief, that when you think about white nationalism or, or government extremists, that it's far more likely that a local police officer is going to have day to day, if not, you know, contact with these people, as opposed to, say, the FBI or ATF. When you think about things like One Six and you think about the idea of of, you know, being that certain people are on the radar of local police department do you think that police departments in that way have a role to play in terms of sort of this you know domestic violent extremism and and keeping tabs on this and is, is that should there be like a a better way to pass i mean that through from local police departments to places like the FBI to ATF is that again it would feel like motorcycle gangs or, you know, gangs in general that local police are probably more likely to have contact with them than federal agents?
0: Without question, I think that we would benefit greatly for a central repository for that information, passing it from local jurisdictions onto federal jurisdictions for for further uh, investigation. Many of the investigations, as you know, come from you know local information you know everything's about relationships so often it's through a local source who knows an officer or a detective or calls a police department that, that information comes through and it's sometimes handed off to the jttf uh, joint terrorism task force or other places um, to be um, reviewed but i think a lot of information um, is brought in locally and i would i really wish that there was a central repository where that information could be, um, you know, processed locally uh, and then, you know, addressed locally. But also um, liaison to provide, the, uh, you know, the federal perspective as well, or, or a line of sight for the federal, um, uh, the federal investigators as well. And because they're just really not as connected as they could be, even though I think the Joint Terrorism Task Force um, certainly has helped with that. Um, it's not the end all uh, to that level of information sharing.
1: Well, you know, and there are plenty of police departments, let's be honest, where they don't have a a line in, like you said, it's all relationships, they don't have a line into a JTTF. So, you know, it it seems to me that there's information that perhaps feds may want to know that just, there's just no way for the agencies to talk to each other. And it feels like, is that something you've seen progress on? Is that something that there's been strength, strengthening of relationships? Or is it still, you know, we could be doing better?
0: yeah, like so many other things, it, it you know it's geographically independent, it's people dependent. Uh, I felt like we had a very strong relationship in Seattle with our Federal Bureau of Investigation and with the ETF and other other federal um, other federal entities. I know that's not always the case everywhere. Sometimes it's personality driven. Uh, and so it would really benefit uh, the profession as a whole. Uh, if there was something um, in place, you know, formalized. You know, the informal relationships are great and have been very beneficial, but they also can be inhibitors. Uh, you know, when you're dealing with people and the fallacy of people <laughs> and the uh, and how that can how that can be. So, having something more formal definitely uh, would be a benefit. A benefit, but I have to say that you know, most people try to have that good relationship with the federal partners, and federal partners want to have a relationship generally speaking uh, with local jurisdictions but that isn't doesn't always come to fruition and as we work through resource challenges budget challenges or sometimes just mere personalities uh, it can become you know difficult uh, to really make it consistent
1: well you know I, I can say this because I spent many years living in Seattle and I was certainly certainly as a Seattle resident sorry to see you leave I understood why but you know, I've always found you to be this really even keeled thinker when it comes to policing. And, and I just have to ask for the last question. You know, there's a lot of change. There's a lot of work. We've talked about a lot of things that can be done here. I know you've got this great gig at Microsoft and I know you're just starting and it, it sounds like a fascinating position. But I have to ask Chief, would you ever consider going back to policing? Are you going to miss it? I mean, is there is there a role for you in the future to go back to law enforcement?
0: Yeah, you know, I have to answer fairly and say that, you know, as you know, I'm starting a new position. I'm very excited about it, looking forward uh, very much so to the work in the private sector, working on risk and other issues. Uh, But I still, you know, pay close attention to what's happening in policing. I still feel like I'm making uh, a difference uh, within that profession. You know, I still chair, along with Chief Diaz uh, from Seattle, the Human Civil Rights Commission um, committee, that is. For the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and still stay heavily involved uh, with the Seattle Police Foundation, uh, because I think you know public safety is so incredibly important. And I spent you know the almost three decades of my life working you know very fervently on public safety and policing. So I'll always stay connected. You know what the future holds, I don't know, uh, but um, for now, you know, it's it's, a, it's in the corporate field.
1: Well, I, I lied. I had to ask you one last question. So. <laughs> You know, for a young person who is thinking about a career in law enforcement, there's a lot of reasons that they may want to consider something else. But can you give us some reasons that they should that, you know, to inspire the next generation of law enforcement officers? What would
0: you say to them? Yeah, you know, well, I can tell you what it what how I love the profession. I still have a great deal of uh, high, you know, regard for the profession, because this is a way you can really give back and make a difference now, policing isn't all car chases and gunfights it really is service dealing with people in the most vulnerable times you know helping folks uh, often in really bad circumstances yep sometimes it's even you know putting handcuffs on bad guys and people who've committed violations uh, but you can do that with respect and dignity uh, and do that in such a way that even that person who's having a bad day can have a better day and so it can be so rewarding I can tell you I don't regret a single day. Every day was different. Every day I felt like I was making an impact in some way. And so I I think that in that regard, it's it's a good job and an honorable job uh, and one where you can really make an impact uh, on society and on the way things are going. And I I would close with just by saying, many of the young people that I've met and I've talked to of late really do care about their future. Uh, You know, I'm not personally, I'm talking of society speaking, like where are we going as a society? What types of things do we want to, you know, hand on and have as a legacy? So I think that if you're interested in that, you know, there's no better job. Thanks
1: once again to Carmen Bass for joining us. Her book, Black in Blue, Lessons on Leadership, Breaking Barriers and Racial Reconciliation is available at all your favorite online booksellers. If you like this episode of Declassified, we'd love if you could subscribe and leave us a five-star review. As a new show, it really does help us both grow and bring you this original content. As always, until next time, I'm Naveed Jamali for Newsweek.